Well, good morning. It's good to see you. We're back in Acts chapter 18 and 19. We, uh, we delved into this last Sunday, and I didn't get finished, so I want to finish it today. And uh, I explained last week as we were talking about this that uh, the uh, juxtaposition, that is the um, placing side by side of these two episodes that introduce us to what God is doing in this great metropolitan city of Ephesus. You recall I mentioned it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, which meant the world, the the world that mattered. So Ephesus is a, a major city, and it is here that God is at work as the gospel continues to go go outward, which really is the theme of Acts. It's what Luke is telling us is about the march of God and the gospel through the Holy Spirit. Now that Jesus, the Spirit just came upon me, (laughs) through the Holy Spirit, because Jesus has been raised from the dead and exalted to the Father and now poured out upon his people, which is an extraordinary thing, extraordinary fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, which seems what we would expect because Jesus is also a fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. And so all of this is coming together. And just as we're introduced in Acts, to the fact that now Jesus' people, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, are sealed with the Spirit, and that is the power of God. That's the power and presence of Jesus Christ in their lives. And the Spirit just prompts us to, to really give God first place in our lives. To put Him first. And to talk about Jesus Christ, to exult in Him. And that's what we see here in Acts. That's what we see in Apollos. But we don't see it in some disciples that we're introduced to in chapter 19. So I want us to look at this. Both are put together uh, in our minds and our hearts. I think Luke put them side by side uh, because they not only introduce us to what God is doing in in, uh, in Ephesus, through Paul and his associates, Aquila and Priscilla, but we're also introduced uh, uh, to John's baptism. Before we read this, let's say uh, you can glance at the map that's projected behind me, and you can see that uh, when we start reading in chapter 18, verse 22, we'll be picking up with uh, Antioch, and uh, that is where Paul begins, and he makes his way to Ephesus, and that. Uh, really is where we find him at the beginning of chapter 19. But in the meantime, while he's making his way uh, through the hinterland of Asia, things are going on in Ephesus, and that's what uh, we'll be introduced to when we're introduced to Apollos. So that kind of gives you a little bit of an orientation. That's the Mediterranean as it's labeled. And uh, so let's begin reading at chapter 18, verse 22. When he, that is Paul, landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And you always go up, as I explained, to Jerusalem, and that's where the church is. He went up there, obviously, to report 
as he completes his second missionary journey, the journey that has brought him to this point. And then he went down to Antioch. You always go down from Jerusalem. Uh, after spending some time in Antioch, and you remember it was a church in Antioch, it's almost the model church, the model Gentile church, or the model church of Gentiles and Jews in Acts. They send out Paul and Barnabas and the first missionary. And Paul, of course, goes, goes for Silas and then picks up Timothy. And that's the second missionary journey that he's completed. And that's what we're having mention of here. And so after spending some time in Antioch, where he reported what God had done, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So he travels, you see, west into the heart of Asia there. And the little green dots indicate his movement if you're following the, the hashed red line. <laughs> okay, verse uh, 24. Meanwhile, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, the second largest city in the Roman Empire, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, which is where Paul had come from, that's where his work at Athens and Corinth took place, that's the region, the brothers encouraged him, that is Apollos, and wrote to the disciples there, to welcome him. On arriving, he was uh, a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. Chapter 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. That's a, that's a literal rendering of the Greek. Some disciples. That's how you should think about these people. They're some disciples. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked him, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the, in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Well, last week, I gave you uh, uh, three, I gave you my opinion uh, about Apollos and 
some disciples in chapter 19. I should point out that some believe that Apollos is not a believer. He just has a lot of knowledge. And he teaches about Jesus, and he teaches in the synagogue, and they believe that then Aquila and Priscilla convert him. And they believe some disciples are Christians, they just don't know there's a Holy Spirit. And so Paul tells them there is, they're baptized in the name of Jesus, and they receive the Holy Spirit. That's just almost the diametrical, total polar opposite of what my opinion is. I'm going to give you my opinion very briefly. I was a little more long-winded last Sunday, but I'm going to tell it very briefly. One, I believe Apollos has the Holy Spirit. He is a disciple of Jesus Christ. I believe that some disciples in Acts chapter 19 do not have the Spirit, are not disciples of Jesus Christ, not believers in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's point one. Uh, point two of my opinion is this. If we asked Apollos, and we, we asked the some disciples of chapter 19, um, if what they think about water baptism, or if they know about baptism, they would tell you that they know about John's baptism. They would not talk about baptism in the name of Jesus. They don't know about baptism in the name of Jesus. And so water baptism represents baptism in, the, in John, or John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. But water baptism also is baptism in the name of Jesus. And that's really the way to think about them differently. One is baptism in the name of Jesus, and then the other is a baptism of repentance. But they're both water baptisms, okay? They both involve water. A third point about my opinion. Apollos required correction. It says that he taught accurately the facts or things about Jesus. Then it goes on, uh, starting in verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Priscilla and Aquila host him in their home, and it says that they explained to him the way of God, I'm going to give you a very literal translation, more accurately. More accurately. And the, it's the exact same word that is used to describe the teaching of Apollos when it says that he accurately taught the facts or things about Jesus. And then they taught Apollos more accurate. You with me? Okay. So he is corrected in my opinion. But when we go to chapter 19, the disciples there are converted. They don't know there's a Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't know really about Jesus. And they are baptized into the name, it even says, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then what happens? Paul lays hands on them, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. To me, that's a conversion. So in my opinion, to sum it up, I, 
I'm teaching you. According to my understanding, Apollos is a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. He has the Holy Spirit. It's manifest in his life. That's what I'm telling you. And he needs to be corrected on something. And he's corrected on the fact of John's baptism. He's corrected in this way. They tell him about the baptism about baptism in the name of Jesus and that baptism in the name of Jesus has taken the place of baptism in the name of John that's the more correctly but i'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment the reason i emphasize this is because i think that what we see in the uh, these two passages being put side by side by Luke what we see, I think, is the importance is not water baptism, but the Holy Spirit. In fact, I think that's made prominent when Paul encounters some disciples, and the first question he asks them is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Or did you receive the Spirit when you believed? I mean, that's cutting right to the chase. So let's look at this a little bit more closely. I emphasized last week that it's the water. Uh, it's not the water, it's the Spirit. And that, I really think, is the thrust of the whole New Testament in a way. But Acts brings it so much into our, our view because, as I tried to point out last week, when Jesus is raised... He pours out the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Um, just to, I don't want to take anything for granted, but after Jesus is crucified, the disciples are disenchanted. They're disheartened. They've lost hope. I mean, they've put their money on a man who ends up dead, right? They've gambled everything. They've left their nets to follow him. They followed the wrong man. That's basically the... And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up because they, the women went to the tomb, the stone was rolled away, and Jesus appeared to his disciples. And when we pick up in Acts, we're told that it is during this, this 40 days, there are a few days left until Pentecost. Pentecost means after Passover, 50 days. 50 days between Passover and Pentecost. Jesus is saying to his disciples after he's appeared to them, I want you to go to Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father. I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit. I'm really summarizing here, but this is the emphasis of chapter 24 of, of Acts, I mean of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and it's the emphasis right off the top when we turn to Acts chapter 1. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to be, he says, you're going to be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you. You're going to know power, verse 8, and be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you. And then Jesus is taken up. Right after he's talked to them, Jesus is exalted, taken up, and they, in the next chapter, chapter 2 at Pentecost, they're 
They're doing just as Jesus told them. They're waiting, and the Spirit is poured out. They didn't have to do any special hocus-pocus. It was God's initiative. And He poured out the Spirit on the 120. And Peter, full of the Spirit, we're told, starts to talk about what's going on. Now, there's many people see this. It's 9 in the morning, and they think they're drunk. They've been, you know, imbibing early in the morning. And Peter kiboshes that. He says, this is the fulfillment of Joel. This is the fulfillment of the prophets. Jesus is the Messiah, and now the Spirit. And in chapter 2, well, which is where we have this proclamation, verse 33, we read it on the screen earlier during our worship time, uh, praise time. He says, Jesus has been exalted. He has received the promise of the Father, and He, that is Jesus, has poured out the Spirit on His people. This is what you've got to get. That's my point. You know, I, in the last service, I took a whole different tack, and I don't know if we're getting it. We're nothing without the Holy Spirit. I just think Christians just go on about their business as though the Holy Spirit hasn't been poured out. I don't think they live by the Spirit. I don't think they walk in the power of the Spirit. Because I know I don't all the time. If you think I'm preaching at you, I, I, I get after myself. Now you've got to get after yourselves. If the church isn't what it ought to be in this world, it's because the church... Just a little background music while I make my big point. It's because the church isn't really doing it in the power of the Spirit. It's doing it in its own strength. Those 120 could have died of old age up in that room without the Holy Spirit. There wouldn't have been any proclamation. There wouldn't have been any writing of Acts. There wouldn't be a story to tell. We could talk about Jesus being crucified on the cross for our sins and raised, but we wouldn't be talking about our resurrection because part of the resurrection isn't just that we have this big gap between where we are now and when we die so that when we die we really pick up and go on living. The point of the resurrection is that the Spirit is poured out now. Resurrection power is ours in Jesus Christ. There's new life in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And that's why last week, which Brian drew attention to, I said the proof of the resurrection is the Holy Spirit in our lives. Which is a point I think Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's writing to the Corinthians. So, Jesus people know it's not the water. Or at least they should know. And you know what? It's got to start with us. It's got to be revived with us. In our homes. That's our Judea. 
What's your Samaria? At work, school, your neighbors? What's the end of the earth for you? Is that what God's calling you to do that you'll just never do because it's too risky and you can't do it in your own strength? Maybe it's to part ways with some people, some some habits, some things that have taken over your life and become God in your life. Maybe that's the ends of the earth for you. And only through the power of the Spirit, really trusting Him, walking step by step, setting your mind on Him, being filled. The Spirit doesn't come in every time. The Spirit's in you. You can't shake Him out. He's bugging you. He's prompting you. You can quench. We're told that again and again. You can grieve. The Holy Spirit. Like, you know, when, 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 I'm so much better about it now, but Shelly would, uh, would, you know, sometimes in her own way, rib me. Like, I, oh, oh, I almost forgot. Did you see me stand up right at the, at the beginning? Dumb pastor, you know, not paying attention, just pops right up. And did you see Shelly kind of pull my, the back of my shirt? Like, John, sit down. It's not time. (laughs) You know, that's how the Holy Spirit is in our lives. There was a time in in my marriage when sometimes I would resent that because I I didn't like to be told what to do, even though she had my best interests at heart. She's looking out for me. She wants to see me succeed. She really does. She wants me to look my best, or sound my best, or behave at my best, you know? Because that's the way she sees me. She knows who I am and who I can be. She's seen me at my very best, so she always wants me to live up to that and more. That's the Holy Spirit in your life. Some of you have been given your wives to help serve the interests of the Holy Spirit in your life. And some of you have been given your husbands in the same way. Anyway, that's another sermon, but (laughs) what's your Judea, your Samaria, your ends of the earth? You'll never make it there unless you really believe Jesus is Lord, that you can really trust him, that he knows what he's doing, that he really is the Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of God's great plan. That God's destiny for this creation and every individual is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's the message of the New Testament. That, in fact, is the emphasis of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. So where do you fit into all this? Where do I? Do you believe that, that you can trust God in your part in all of this? It begins with His Lordship and His power. And that's not, see, just something far away. That's something as close to us as our very breath because God has invested you with His Spirit as one who claims Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and seeks to walk after Him. And that Spirit 
will empower you. And that is why it's not the water, it's the Spirit. It's more than water. And we see this in Apollos, I think. And I just want to quickly walk us through. Now, you know, this is, Acts is a narrative. And in narrative time, there's something interesting here. When we're introduced to Apollos, it says, you know, meanwhile, did you pick that up? Meanwhile, it's almost like a serial or something when you're listening to a story on the radio or reading a book. And meanwhile, Apollos came from Alexandria. And here's how he's described. He's a learned man. Verse 24. He's educated. By the way, Alexandria had a, I mean, a, a, an empire-wide reputation for learning and education. That was where the great library was, one of the wonders of the world. It was the second largest population. And he comes from there. But secondly, in verse 24, we're, we're told he has a thorough. The word is powerful, capable. The noun, it's an adjective. The noun is used of miracles. The miracles of Jesus are called dunamis. And this is a related or cousin word used here. He has a thorough, capable, he has a powerful knowledge of the Scriptures. What are the Scriptures? Well, when I think of the Scriptures, I think of Old and New Testament. But the New Testament is being written in the lives and experiences that now we're reading in record. Do you understand that? So that means they didn't have the New Testament. The, um, the Gideons were not passing out little pocket testaments. They had the Scriptures of what we call the Old Testament. So when it says he has this thorough knowledge of the Scriptures, it means that he knows and can explain and he can teach and he can understand what's being taught in the Old Testament. Now, what does he do with that? Then we're told, uh, verse, the next thing in verse 25, this is the third thing we learn about him. He's instructed in the way of the Lord. What's the way of the Lord? Well, that's... That's the gospel. That's the way. Remember, again and again, we've heard along our reading in Acts about the way. That's the way of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And so he's thoroughly, not only knowledgeable in the Scriptures, he's instructed in the way of the Lord. Why would that be important? Because if you're just left with the Old Testament, you're not going to make the move to Jesus unless someone's told you about him. He has been instructed in the way of the Lord. He knows what God has done in Jesus Christ. He knows He died for sin and was raised. And he, He knows that He's poured out His Spirit. That's what I think. My opinion. Number four. It says that He spoke with great fervor. Now, I'm going to tell you, many understand that to mean he spoke with great fervor. You know why they trans... What it literally reads is this. He fervent in the Spirit. If you were just a, a brand new Greek student and you were reading, just literally, you would read it, fervent in the Spirit. 
but they translate it fervent in spirit because sometimes they don't think, those that translate it, they don't think that this guy is a believer and that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. But literally it says, in fervent in the Spirit. The Spirit. Now it's true that in some cases it could be used as a euphemism for fervent in spirit, as though you were fervent in your own spirit, that you're just, you know, you're you just kind of get psyched up, man. You're really excited. You the the spotlight comes on, and man, you're just you're ready to perform, you know? You're on. Fervent in spirit. All worked up, energized. Or it could be that he's all worked up and energized because he literally is fervent in the Spirit. Well, let's decide. That's part of what I'm trying to show you. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, this very same expression is used by Paul in his letter to the Romans, writing to Christians, and he uses this expression, fervent in the Spirit. He wants us to be fervent in the Spirit. Do you think he would ask you, Paul would ask you to be fervent in your own spirit? Really? I mean, think about it. Would Paul ever ask you to be fervent in your own spirit? You can do that on your own. He doesn't need to encourage you. He wants you to be fervent in the Spirit. In fact, some translations render this expression here aglow with the Spirit, on fire in the Spirit. Because the word translated fervent is the word to boil. You ever seen fish in the, you know, like you go to a koi pond and, and you throw some food in there? What does the water do? It boils. And when it boils, what happens? There's a little spray and splatter. Like when you pour a Coke onto ice, it boils. Uh, effervescent. Apollos is effervescent in the Spirit. That's what I think. And what's he doing when he's fervent in the Spirit? It says, fervent in the Spirit, speaking and teaching. This is the way I think it should be translated, and I'm not alone. Fervent in the Spirit, speaking and teaching accurately the facts or the things, if you like, if it's literally the things of Jesus, or about Jesus, or concerning Jesus, would all be rendered. Now, what are you doing when you're speaking and you're fervent in the Spirit? You're proclaiming Jesus Christ. And Teaching accurately the things. Teaching accurately the things about Jesus Christ. i got to tell you, I, if I'm fervent, ever fervent in the Spirit, it's because of what I'm teaching. I'm a very shy person. I've really worked through that. I, many people don't think I'm, but I'm an introvert. I would prefer not to be in the light I like to hang back. I'd like to make, let others make fools of themselves. <laughs> kind of protect, self-protective, I guess. But the point is, is that the reason I'm here and I can get fervent is because I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the Lord. 
That's what energizes me. I think that's what energized Apollos. It says he's speaking and teaching accurately, talking about Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what the Spirit does. We're told in the Gospel of John 14, 15, 16 about the Holy Spirit. Profound. If you haven't ever read those three chapters, I would encourage you, especially to learn more about the Holy Spirit. But it's important to understand that the Spirit is always putting the emphasis on Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit is all about Jesus Christ because the Spirit represents the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And that's the message that the whole world, there's no greater message, there's no other message than that. That He who was sent from God has been raised from the dead. That is our destiny because of Jesus Christ. That is the message for the world. New life. New life with God. And that is experienced through the Spirit and to be consummated one day. But that's a huge message, and I think he's really on fire in the Spirit, and that's why it says he spoke with great fervor. You know what? Up until this point, had not the picture of Apollos been linked to some disciples in chapter 19, no one would doubt that he was a Christian evangelist. I mean, really. No one would doubt. And then you have these words, though he knew only the baptism of John. (laughs) So what does that mean? Let's look at verse 26. It says he's speaking boldly in the synagogue. So what's he saying? Well, we've already been told in verse 24 and 25 what he's all about. He's well-versed. He's very capable in the Scriptures. And he's speaking fervent in the Spirit, speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus Christ. So what's he doing? He's proving Jesus Christ from the Scriptures, and he's speaking boldly, which is another hallmark of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, again and again and again. In fact, in chapter 4, that was after Peter was Peter and John were surprisingly released from prison. They joined the, dis, the disciples. The Jesus people have gathered, and they're in prayer, and they join them, and it says they pray to speak the Word of God with boldness, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And that's what they do. And here he is speaking boldly in the synagogue. And I just want to give you a picture of what this guy is doing. I mean, this is what's created by what Lucas told us. He's in the synagogue, and he's proving that Jesus is the Messiah from the Scriptures, and he's doing it boldly and effervescently and with energy and power because he's full of the Holy Spirit. And then what does he do? He says, believe in Jesus the Messiah, right? And then what does he do? He challenges them, and he calls them to a point of commitment, and he says, submit to the baptism of John in repentance. That's what I think. That was the call. That was the point of conviction. That's what, that's what J- John the Baptist was all about. That's what his baptism was about. A point of preparation for Jesus. Repentance. And I think that's what he was doing. He was calling them in the synagogue to repentance to prepare them for belief in Jesus Christ. And Aquila and Priscilla heard it, and what did they do? They corrected him. There is a baptism. This is what I think. It's not written out. But I'm asking you, is this plausible? Quite plausible. 
And they took him aside and they told him about baptism in the name of Jesus. Then what happens? They fully endorse him. Fully, you don't fully endorse someone who's a brand new believer or someone who's just been converted. This is not the description of a new believer. And they send him to Corinth. What happens when you read Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapters 1, 2, and 3? Very first chapter, what's at issue? People in Corinth, new believers, have taken sides. Some follow Apollos, some follow Paul. And what's at issue? Well, Paul gives us a hint. He says, I'm so glad I only baptized one or two of you. Well, the issue is, is that people are following or siding up or saying, Our, we were baptized by Apollos. Oh no, we were baptized by Paul. So what kind of baptism now? Sequentially, this is baptism in the name of Jesus. That's my case. But the point is, if he was converted, I think it would be characteristic, or it would be characteristic of Luke to tell us he was, that he was baptized in the name of Jesus. But he doesn't. But look at what you see when you get to chapter 19. Just quickly. And look at what we've learned here as we consider the fact that it's about the Spirit. First question. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? In other words, the Spirit and discipleship go together, don't they? To be a disciple or a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is expected to be there. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? And they said, we don't even know there is a Spirit. Well, that tells you the quality of their belief and where they're at. And so what, what baptism, he says, into what, literally, into what were you baptized? Paul's fishing here. And they said, the baptism of John. So it's verse 4, Paul gives us this beautiful definition or description of the baptism of John. Is a baptism of repentance. That you should believe in the one coming after him. And that one coming after him is Jesus. And then what is it? What do they do? They enter into baptism and they're baptized in the name of Jesus. In fact, the word Lord is mentioned there. That's a conversion. So just keep that in mind. I think Apollos is a Christian. He's corrected. These disciples are converted. They don't know Jesus. They don't have the Holy Spirit. If they're called disciples and that belief is mentioned, it's not the right kind of disciple. It's not the right kind of belief. They're baptized in the name of Jesus, who is Lord. Paul lays hands on them, I think, as a confirmation, a ratification or verification of their true faith, which is not the first time. John and Peter did it with the Samaritans. The Spirit comes upon them, and it says they spoke in tongues, and they prophesied. By the way, prophesying is not just foretelling the future. In fact, when the Holy Spirit came upon uh, Cornelius, who was the first Gentile, Peter was right in, right in the middle of preaching. And he hadn't been baptized, and the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius. And the proof is what? Tongues, and it says they were extolling the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 11, when the people started speaking in, in tongues, what were they doing? Extolling God, verse 11. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19, he says, do not quench the Spirit and do not despise prophesying. 
Why do you think that is? Because the Spirit and prophesying go together. But we think, oh, I want to know the Spirit in my life, and I'm not healing, and I'm not speaking in tongues that I don't understand, and I'm not predicting the future. Well, if you're expecting that to be the evidence, your bona fide evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're going to be waiting a long time. No wonder you're discouraged. No wonder you're not out there talking about Jesus because the Spirit, first and foremost, puts God front and center in your life. In the person of Jesus Christ. He's our message. That's why Paul says, and I shared briefly, you know, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Well, what are the things of the Spirit? The things of the Spirit are the things of God. They're the things of Jesus Christ. Or in Galatians 5.16, walk after the Spirit. Uh, we're wandering around. But if you're walking after the Spirit, who are you walking after? You're walking after Jesus Christ. God gets first place in your life. That, you know, that these things are not immaterial. This is not something for monks in monasteries. This is real. This is how you make decisions about what really matters in life, what's good and what's bad. This is about putting others ahead of yourself. You know what's interesting? Um, I know, I'm running out of time again. John wrote in chapter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. Listen to this. Our love for each other proves that we have gone from death to life. How do you go from death to life? Only through the Holy Spirit. Really, only through the Holy Spirit. Have you ever read Romans chapter 6? I'm just going to conclude here. Listen to what he says. Just think about this. This is what Paul wrote. Now, if you, he'd never been to this church. This would be like if I'd never met you and, and I just sent you a letter. Now, there are lots of acquaintances and associations, but Paul writes to this church that he's never, he's never been in Rome to visit this church. And this is what he writes here. Now, this is in 6.33. Now, get this. He says, um, don't you know, verse 3, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, why should they know that? He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized. Isn't that interesting? All of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Paul thinks that all of these people in the largest city in the Roman world already know about baptism. And that he can talk about baptism in terms of death and resurrection. That's what he says. He says you were buried with him in a death like his. You will be raised in a resurrection like his to what? Newness of life. Where's the newness of life come from? Why is there newness of life? Because Jesus was raised? What does that have to do with you or me? Are we just on hold until we die and then we're raised? So we're, we're, we're just pedaling a stationary bike with no place to go? No, what he's saying is, is that newness of life is now. Newness of life is right now. And how do we have that? 
the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. In fact, in verse 11, let me read it to you. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. In the King James Version, and it's a good, it's a good word. It's reckon. Now that's something I guess we think only hillbillies say anymore. But reckon means to calculate. Now, I turned over the finances to Shelley a long time ago, and she does a much better job than me. That's why she does it. But I used to balance my checkbook, and I would weigh it against my bank account. And when you reckon your checkbook and your bank account, you don't get something that isn't there. You see it the way it is, right? You see it the way, you'd like there to be more money, you'd like to reckon something into existence, but what you reckon is what's really there. That's what Paul is saying. He says, reckon yourselves dead to sin. How can you do that? Because these are spiritual realities that we ought to be living by. The Holy Spirit, dead to sin, new life, that's what's represented in that burial and resurrection. That's what's, we, we say symbolized, but I like the word enacted. We actually enter in, as it were, into the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The death to sin and the raise to newness of life. That's what that represents. And Paul says we can reckon it because it's just as real as the bottom line of reckoning your checking account. Only in this case, it's these great and powerful tools, uh, truths that can be tools to the way we look at the world and see ourselves and live in the present. That's powerful, powerful stuff. So baptism is important. I was rebaptized when I made Jesus Christ Lord of my life because I wanted that enactment. I wanted to say to everybody who saw me, I'm being buried with Jesus Christ. My old life is gone. It's as dead as death. But I'm raised to new. It's a new day. It's a new life. It's a new way. That's why Paul said, put off the old man. Because we all, we want to crawl off that altar. We want to pull on that old man. We do it a hundred times sometimes, even in a day. But at least we have that struggle because the Holy Spirit is prompting us. It's going to say, I'm greater and more powerful than the flesh. Who's your Lord? Who's your master? The flesh or me? That's what God is saying. This week, today, take those steps. and Let's be a part of God's revival in His church. Not here, only here in Visalia, starting with us, but around this nation in our Judea, our Samaria, even to the utter ends of the earth. Will you stand with me? Let me pray for us. When I say amen, I, I want you to know I'm going to be down here along with elders and, and pastoral staff if you'd like to pray for yourself or pray for someone else. I just got to believe God has spoken to you in a tailored way. Each of us are at different stages in our Christian life. But it all begins with one step in the Spirit. And it continues that way. Let God lead. Be excited. Get a vision of what He has planned for your life. See the beauty that He wants to bring because He 
through the power of the Spirit, wants to make you into the beautiful person of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you for Jesus Christ. We wouldn't be anywhere without them. But Father, thank you for what Jesus has done for us in pouring out the promise, your promise, Spirit. This week, may we walk and live in your Spirit. In Jesus' name, that's our prayer. Amen.